0: My name's Greg Murray. If we've uh, never personally met, um, I'm also on the team. Look after some of the cross-cultural mission stuff that's actually going to come up at the end of August into September for our church. Uh, Vincent from Italy is going to return, which is fantastic news, and be with us. And uh, also look after some, some of the Bible teaching as well. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 19. I thought to myself, if I had, this was my last opportunity to share with you something from my heart. If, it, if this was the last time I got to present a talk in a gathering like this on a Sunday morning, what would I want to say? And the main thing I think I would leave with anybody is you have to have a genuine, authentic relationship with God. You can't fake religiosity in Christianity. You can try, but it actually doesn't work. There's something about giving all of your heart, your mind to God and not reserving some parts of your life where you keep God away from it. What struck me is um, Jesus has got this little phrase that sort of jumped out, to me, jumped out at me in Luke 17. He says, remember Lot's wife. Anyone heard the story of Lot and his wife? Anyone know that's Genesis 19? No, heard it. Who's never heard of the story? Oh, well, most of us, heard. Oh, a couple of people haven't heard of it. Okay, well, we're going to look at it tonight because, or today, tonight, feels like tonight. Uh, <laughs> we, got, we got up early. Uh, it's not tonight, it's, it's this morning. But we're going to look at it because why would Jesus want us to remember what happened to this woman? And how does it connect? Because really she's going to illustrate for us the importance of having a genuine relationship with God that carries into every area of who we are and how we live. We can't sort of pigeonhole God to one section of life, like for instance coming on a Sunday thinking we've done a, like a religious duty and that that'll keep God satisfied and you know I should get into heaven, he, he'll probably bless me if I do that. But then during the week we actually have no connection or relationship with God whatsoever. That's not Christianity, and even in the Old Testament it's not what God wanted. And this particular woman illustrates that truth for us. So that's what I want to share with you this morning is if you remember anything, have a deep, genuine relationship with God that's authentic and give all to God. You've got to be all in with your relationship with God. You've got to commit every part of who you are to have a full relationship with God that's going to carry you through your life, through the good times, the bad times, the in-between times. We cannot be superficial insecure, or insignificant in our relationship with God. And so we're going to read Genesis 19 because, I mean, this story's got everything. I mean, I don't know if I can say the word sex in church, but it's got, you know, guys want to rape this other guy. We've got, you know, fire coming down from heaven. I mean... This is full on, so buckle up, buttercup, because it's going to get tough. (laughs) Genesis 19, it's just, it's it's an incredible story. And uh, we'll read it together, and then I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory as we go through. And then, of course, why would Jesus say to us, remember Lot's wife? So Genesis 19, I'm going to start at verse 1. If you're taking notes, we're going to go to verse 29. Uh, You can go further. So some, two angels arrive at a Sodom, which is a city, in the evening. And Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city when he saw them. Now, just pause there for a minute. That's important because what the author is telling us is Lot is like is, is like a leader in the village or in the city. So he's not sitting at the gate waiting for his Maccas to arrive on Uber Eats, right? He's sitting at the gate because that's where, like the... Think of like a mayor or a local council or the city of Melbourne council would actually sit and make decisions. People would come with their issues, you know, planning and neighbour issues and all that. They would make these decisions there. So that's why the author tells us where, where Lot is when the two angels arrive. Now, Another thing, angels don't have wings. So the angels don't flap down and arrive at Lot. They look like normal human beings, right? They look like men. Um, It's a myth that angels have wings. I'm sorry to blow that one up, Um, but that's for another story. Anyway, so these two guys arrive. Lot is a significant leader in the community, and that's why he's at the city gate. And so when he sees them, back to to, to verse 1, when Lot sees them, he gets up to meet them, bows down. So he knows they're messengers from God. We're not sure how that, but he bows down his face to the ground. My lords, he says, please... Turn aside to your servant's house. In other words, please come. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. So he's going to be very hospitable, which is very Middle Eastern in its culture. And I'm going to show you where this story took place. I've got a picture I'll show you. So it's a Middle Eastern culture here. If strangers come and you want to host them, you have to look after them very well. But they say, no, we'll spend the night in the square, so in the main part of town. But he insisted strongly, so strongly that they had to go They go with him. And, of course, they enter into his house. He prepares them a meal. He bakes them bread without yeast. And that's because he's doing it on the rush, right? That's not just because he's not want to bake bread without yeast. He's just trying to feed them before it gets dark. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom... Um, oh, sorry, he wants to break bread and go to bed. And all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surround the house, and they call out to Lot, "'Where are the men?' who came with you tonight. Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Wow, that got your attention, didn't it? All the males, so we know this is a perverse city. So God gave them, if you read the history, God gives them the opportunity, but they're following other gods, which includes a lot of sexual perversion. And so this this rampant in town, so all the guys, these two strangers turn up, words got out, they surround Lot's house and say, send those guys out. So now the next verse. Lot goes outside to meet them and shut the door behind them. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. So This is not a parenting course, by the way. All right. I wouldn't advise you to say that. One of the things about Old Testament stories, they're not moral tales. They're stories that show God at work, even through broken, dysfunctional people to bring about his plan and so, you know, I'm not recommending you say that to any any people. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Uh, he says, he says, I'll bring them out, but of course, they 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 don't want the guys basically. So, verse nine, get out of our way, they reply. Um, and this fellow who came, so he's an alien, and I'll tell you why. So that now the townspeople are saying to Lot, you weren't born here, right? Don't you might be a leader, but you're not from here. Which I'm going to tell you about that in a minute. So you're an alien is the word in, in the NIV that I've got in front of me but you might have a different word but that's what it's referring to. He He's not a local, he's he settled there and he's lived there for a long time, he's become influential and significant but he's definitely not a local in their eyes, it's like any country town in Australia right, if you go and live there you're not a local if you weren't born there and so they say get out of the way, you know they want to have them so but a Look at verse 11, but the men inside reach out and pulled back Lot into the house, shut the door, and they struck the crowd with blindness, and so they couldn't find the door. And the two men, these are the angels, say to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Now this is where the story gets to where we're going to go. Lot is unaware that God's about to destroy this city, so that's why they're there. He's asked them to stay the night, and then they can move on. They're not planning to move on. They're there to actually destroy the city on behalf of God. And so the two men say, do you have anyone else living here, like son-in-laws, sons, you know, so on? And he says, because anyone else in the city belongs to you, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. And this is why. The outcry to the Lord against the people is so great that God, that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. Now they're pledged to be married. So they're engaged to his two daughters. They're not married yet, but they're sons-in-law in in their culture. But look, he talks to them and his daughters as well. And Lot says to his two daughters and his two um, two soon-to-be sons-in-law, hurry, we've got to get out of here because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thinks that he's joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urge Lot, Hurry, take uh, your wife and your two daughters. That's the first time we hear about Lot's wife, by the way, in the Bible, right there in that verse. We don't even get to know her name. It says, take your wife, your two daughters, so we know the sons-in-laws, and they sort of think it's a joke, or you'll be swept away as this city is punished. But look at verse 16. They hesitate. They don't believe it. So the men, these are the angels, grab them by the hands, of wife and the two daughters, and they lead them out. They run them out of the city. For now, the, look at this verse. For the Lord is merciful to them. So, in the midst of God's judgment, this is a lesson: God is merciful to us, and that's we experience that. That's why we did communion today. So, as soon as they had, you know, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, "Flee, for your lives." So they take them out of the city area, obviously. And they say, keep running, basically. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. They're in a big plain. I'm going to show you a photo in a minute. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. You'll die. But Lot says to them, no, my lords, please. He basically says, we can't run that far. It's a long, long way. And so he basically says, we can go to that town over there, which is Zoal. And so they agree. They say, okay, very well, verse uh, 21. Very well, we'll grant you that request. We will not overthrow that town. We won't destroy that town. But flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. Verse 25. By the time that Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. For the Lord out of the heavens, from the Lord out of the heavens, Thus he overthrew, note that word, he overthrew the city because this is about what gods are we following here? What what religious practices are we doing in this city? And in God's mind, he's overthrowing these demonic forces that these city people have given themselves over to. And so including those living in the cities and all the vegetation of the land, verse 26 is the one for us, but Lot's wife looked back, And she became a pillar of salt. Not white table salt, by the way. Um, It's very, I've actually been there and it's very, there's a lot of minerals and stuff in the area. And so it's like a brown tan sort of colour. So she didn't look like your salt shaker sitting on your kitchen table. That's not what she looked like. Verse 27, we nearly finished here. Early the next morning, Abraham gets up. Now Abraham's living on a mountain overlooking the plain, the valley, where Lot's been living. So Abraham gets up the next morning, he can see the towns on fire. Look at that. When Abraham gets up, he he returns to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and I'm going to show you where that is. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, the land of the plains. When he saw the dense smoke rise from the land, it was like a furnace. So God destroyed the cities of the plain. That's what they're called. There were actually five cities there in total. And he remembered Abraham and brought him out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So that's pretty high drama, right? This is not your typical Sunday school (laughs) talk of very gentle and we've got all this stuff happening. So let me show you a photo. Let's go to that slide there. Thanks, Rachel. So in 2017, I happened to be in Jordan, the the modern city of Jordan. Uh, We went to the capital and then we're on Mount Nebo. So Mount Nebo is overlooking the Valley of the Plains where this event took place. You can actually go there. It's in modern-day Jordan. And that little body of water that you can see on the image is actually the end of the Dead Sea. I couldn't get around to the other side because there was all these bushes and trees and stuff, but I took this photo here. And on the other side is actually the Jordan River that flows into the Dead Sea, and you can see up to the Sea of Galilee and the far distance hills that you can see on that picture is actually modern day Israel. So almost the, the Jordan River is a little bit of a border. Um, part of the modern day geography is part of the Dead Sea's in Jordan, part of the Dead Sea's in Israel. But this is the place in which Moses stood, and oh, sorry, Abraham stood and showed him the Promised Land. When, it, when we just read that verse, he can see it. Now it looks all dead because nothing grow there. Nothing grows there anymore, but it used to be a very fertile, green, plain valley of at least five cities and probably many other towns at the time. So if you go to the next slide for me, Rachel. Because I couldn't get my own photo, I had to steal it off the internet, and I've got the copyright there so I don't get in trouble. But uh, you can see that this is the top end of the Dead Sea, so we sort of swapped sides basically, and you can see on that image there the Jordan River, which I got baptised in. Um, it's very cold, by the way, if you get baptised in the Jordan. But can you see that Tel El haman That could be Sodom. It, there's been geography. It was discovered in about 1924. There's been geologists and, and you know, anthropologists digging there. And they have found some very interesting, fascinating things. Number one is there's a layer of ash that, uh, that some sudden... The extreme temperature event took place. There's no sulphur there in terms of, you know, raining sulphur, but that's because when sulphur hits the ground at high temperature, it doesn't sort of... It just goes into the ground and, and, and gets saturated into the ground. But guess what? Around this area where the Dead Sea used to be much bigger, and so when this event took place, the Dead Sea was still... Or part of that, what you see, was actually underwater they've actually found, you can look it up on on, on Google or, or YouTube, you can actually watch video clips of people digging up large sulphur balls, about the size of a golf ball. And these sulphur balls are white, which is interesting because volcanic sulphur is yellow. And there's no volcanoes or volcanic activity in this area. And so, you know, in terms of people saying, well, God you know, who don't believe Bible stories. They say, well, you know, God couldn't rain down sulphur. Well, they've actually found like hundreds of thousands. You watch the clips on YouTube. Don't do it now while I'm talking, but this afternoon over lunch. there's Many people have gone there and dug them up and put their clips on and they set them on fire. And they're in museums in Jordan. And so this is a real event. There's archaeological evidence. There's swells in the rocks where rocks have melted of around over 6,000 degrees temperature. So this is not some, when Jesus says, I want you to remember Lot's wife, he's talking about a real event. And there's a reason he wants us to remember that she looked back and it cost her her life because she wasn't all in. She had every opportunity to follow God, but she didn't. There was something still in her heart that actually grabbed her attention. She's not just looking back because she's, you know, sort of awestruck by the sulfur falling from the sky and and destroying the town that she lived in. There's some other reason that she's looking back and the angels warned them, don't look back because it probably represented that she wasn't fully committed. Now, again, we don't know her name. Uh, We don't know where she was from. This is the first time we even find out Lot's married. In the biblical narrative. So, some theologians, they sort of guess, it's a best guess. Maybe Lot met her there. Because here's the backstory to um, how Lot ended up in this particular valley. And again, at the time, it was very green. But go to the next slide. Thanks, Rachel. There's a backstory here that, that we don't sort of, unless you know the biblical literature. So, Abraham is in a modern-day Iraqi, God calls him and says, I want to make my own people on the earth who will follow me and I'll choose you, I'll do it through you. And, of course, you know the sort of story, I suppose, of Abraham. Well, Lot is Abraham's nephew. And so part of that whole journey where, you know, again, you can look up how the possible track that Abraham eventually takes from modern-day Iraq all the way down into Jordan on Mount Nebo and eventually does enter into the Promised Land or into modern-day Israel, as we would call it. Lot's probably with him on the whole journey. In fact, we know he's with him, because when you read Genesis 13, 14, and 15, something peculiar happens between them. They're not getting along, Abraham and Lot. What causes them to have a bit of a fallout is actually they would become so wealthy on their travels by adding all to their herds, because it wasn't a monetary society like it is today. So they're herdsmen, both of them. Well, God blesses them so much because of the obedience of following God to the place where God was going to lead them, even though they didn't know where they were going at the time. Their herds increase so much to the point where there's nowhere to feed them. And they have hired help, herdsmen, that are now having fights over where they're feeding Abraham's herds and Lot's herds. And so Abraham eventually comes to Lot. You can read this in Genesis 13. Abraham comes to Lot and says, look, they're not getting along. We obviously can't stay in the same space anymore. We've got too many animals to feed. Um, and Lot actually says, from the Mount, near Mount Nebo, he says, I'll go down there. I'll go near the Jordan River. It's all green. Now, it doesn't rain much down there, even today, but it, used to ra- it rains on the hills and the water would flood into the valley, which would feed into the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and it was very fertile, lush ground. That's why those five cities were already there worshipping other gods. So Lot says, I'll go and down and live in there. And he eventually chooses Sodom. And so we sort of think that maybe be where he met Lot's wife. Where, where it's where he met his wife. Maybe she was a local from that town. Now Again, we, we don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. But here we have this idea, this story behind it, where the two of them separate. Abraham stays up on the hills and Lot goes into the valleys with all these ungodly cities that are not following Yahweh. And even though he becomes influential... Probably him and his whole family are not really fully committed to what God wants them to do. So Jesus, if you've got, flick to Luke 17, if you've got your Bibles there, Jesus mentions this story. In fact, what's interesting, you know the shortest verse in the Bibles in John's Gospel, Jesus wept, right? Two words in English. This is the second shortest verse in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. What caused Jesus to say this? And do we remember Lot's wife? Well, Jesus is having this conversation with a group of religious leaders leaders of his day. You know the name Pharisees, and you can read the story in your own time. So he's having this conversation with them, and it's prompted by a group of Pharisees saying to Jesus, where's the kingdom of God? Now, in their minds, in an ancient Jewish world 2,000 years ago, particularly to religious leaders in their culture, that term, kingdom of God, is a little bit different to how we see it. They were waiting for some messianic person to come with military force and overthrow the invaders, the Romans, who were living and dominating Jerusalem. So, of course, you know, we know that Herod is the governor of, on behalf of the Romans and you know, during Jesus' time and builds all these great structures and then the ones that come after him, his sons, build other great structures. We know some of that information. It's not just in biblical literature. It's in other ancient documents. And so the Pharisees are expecting not a Messiah that looked, acted, and did what Jesus did. They're expecting like this military leader to come in with a great horde of military power, an army, and push out the invading force. And Jesus actually says to them as part of this conversation, he says actually, well, the kingdom of God is, well, he doesn't say this literally, I'm paraphrasing, but it's not geographical. It's actually here. So it's wherever people are following Yahweh with their whole life that the kingdom is present. So right here, right now, because we've gathered together and we have a dedicated, passionate followership of God, like we were singing before in those worship songs, That's the kingdom of God, but these men, these religious men of of Jesus' day, were saying in their heads, at least, where's this military leader? You know, if this guy's really the Messiah, I don't see any army. I see twelve bozos following him, right? So Jesus, he sort of he tells them, he says, the kingdom of God is well, basically wherever we follow God. And then he says to them, he sort of switches to this sort of what we call end times idea that one day God will judge the whole world. And this is where we pick it up, that really he said, in their, most theologians think he was talking specifically about 70 AD where the Romans actually came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem as, we, as he knew it back then, and that he says it's going to be worse for you, this is what he says to the Pharisees, than it was in the days of Sodom. And remember Lot's wife. And this is what the sentence he says straight after that. If you try and save your own life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life, it'll be saved. He joins those two ideas together. Lot's wife, so we know she turned into a pillar of salt. In fact, if you Google that, you can do it now if you want, I don't mind. I thought of putting a picture up there, but it's probably not really Lot's wife. But there's actually a, a huge monolith salt structure Uh, natural occurrence that they in Jordan that has the title Lot's Wife. It's about 25 feet tall and you can have a look at it, but it's probably not Lot's Wife. It's just a big sort of eroded tower. But it's in the area where the event happened. But Jesus joins this idea. He says to them, you better remember. And I think Jesus wants us to remember Lot's Wife because if we try and save our life, you can't do it. That's the point. And even for us religious people, like Jesus is talking to religious leaders in his day who think if I do this and if I do that, God will save me. But it's actually based, we're singing it, it's based on grace, right? His grace runs deep. And in fact, in Genesis 19, the angels tell them, this is the grace of God. You can escape, right? You want to escape any judgment of God? then you can't save yourself no matter how good you think you are, how religious you've been, no matter how much you think you've done for God. If you're not all in, if you haven't laid down everything, given every part of your life to God, you can't save your own life. If you could, we wouldn't need Jesus in the first place. That's what he's telling them. And that's what I think he's telling us today. So, you know, it's mentioned eight times in the Bible. Have a look on the screen here. Now, just, you know, for those who have done any of my sort of training and stuff on our team, and I teach them hermeneutics and exegesis, they're just fancy words for Bible study. It took 1,500 years to write all of Scripture, at least 40 different authors, probably more, many of them unknown or unnamed. Some of them are named. 1,500 years, it's, they, and it's mentioned from, right from the first book of the Bible all the way to Jude, which is the second last or the you know, fourth last book, why does God repeat this story time and time again to subsequent generations and why is it written down for us today to read? It's not as if all those 40 authors got together in a committee one day and said, listen, this is a great story. You know, We've got guys trying to rape this other guy. We've got angels. We've got fire. Let's repeat the story. It's not organised in a human sense, right? But eight, at least eight times. It's actually mentioned a few other times in passing. But significantly... The destruction of these two cities is mentioned eight times because there's a reason that God is repeating the story for anyone who follows Him to remind us we have to be all in if we want to be Christians. If you want to follow God, you can't do it in a superficial veneer way. You have got to have a full, genuine, authentic relationship with God. You can't treat God as an added extra and then continue on the way of your culture or continue on the way of the desires that you had in your heart once that are ungodly. But you think if you just do enough, you can save yourself, but you can't. And so, you know, I know in, um, particularly when I was a new Christian, last, decade, last century that was, by the way, that's how young I am, uh, this, this story got told against homosexuality. And what often got missed is that verse up there in Ezekiel. Just have a look at the verse in end of Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel, probably a few centuries after the event, actually tells as a prophet why it got destroyed. They become unconcerned, overfed. They didn't look after the poor. And they got into perversion because they're following another god that actually expects all these sadistic sexual rituals And that became part of their whole culture, but no one questioned it, even though they had the opportunity to follow Yahweh. And Lot lived there, right? He lives there, but he couldn't even make that change. In fact, really, him and his two daughters got out by the skin of their teeth, as it was, and his wife got killed. And so it's more than just this sexuality story. There's a whole lot of – it's almost like if we don't give our full life to God, then if there's – some of the culture still in us, some of those bad desires that we used to have, if we, just, if we keep making wrong choices in the dark or in secret, we keep pushing God a little bit to the back because I think that's what Lot's wife did. She represents that for us. And so when the crunch comes, you're going to turn back because you think you can save yourself. You think life's going to be better where it was. Even though God is giving you a way out and tells you to run for your life, if If you haven't opened up your whole life to God, then at some point you think you can control your own destiny and you cannot when God's judgment comes. That's the truth of it, right? So these Bible authors, they don't have this committee meeting about let's keep repeating the story. It's a good story. It's juicy. It's entertaining. No, God, by his Holy Spirit, repeats it through the authors so we can understand that there's a warning here. In fact, in the New Testament... Jesus mentions it, Peter mentions it, Jude mentions it, saying that at some point God is going to bring all of his judgment on the earth. And so I think Lot's wife is a physical example of a spiritual condition we can suffer from. She she illustrates for us in a natural sense that if we, you know, like this. Our world gives us so many options of self-gratification, of being happy or what you think is going to make you happy and, you know, whatever you want, you can have, all that sort of stuff with no thought of the spiritual condition of our heart, mind and our souls. And she represents that she wasn't all in with God, which I, I, in some degree I think it's astounding and I'm going to, my, my next slide, the last one, which we'll go to in just in a minute. I'm going to unpack why I think it's astounding. She she had every opportunity and she missed it. And again, Lot wasn't perfect. I'm not saying he was perfect at all. But her looking back in Genesis 19-26 represented her desire not to leave the life that she preferred, the culture she loved so much. Maybe she was born there. Let's, Let's go with that. It's quite possible. And she loved that life more than God's opportunity to get out before judgment came. And is that you? Is that me? Do I love what this culture offers more than what God is asking me to do to remove it from my heart, my mind, my behaviour and put him first? And in fact, I think years of her daily decision to just push God off a little bit, just keep God over there a bit and engage in the culture in the city that she lived in was probably what sort of accumulated in that moment of her looking back. It's not as if she rejected God just at one point. She'd done probably hundreds, thousands of rejections, little ones, daily, weekly, when she had a desire to fulfil her own wishes that were ungodly. And so when the judgement comes, she doesn't want to leave. She thinks that she can save herself. It was just too hard for her to let go. Even though she had every opportunity, God wasn't first in her thoughts or in her heart. And again, is that me? Is that you? Is that us? Let's not that. I think that what Jesus is saying is, remember Lot's wife, you can't save your own life. No matter how good you think everything that the world around us offers, at some point it's not going to save you. In fact, it can lead to your destruction. So she's an example. Have we given every part of our life to God? Are there compartments of our behavior and thinking that we have not let God in and I know we're, we started the series last week strong faith through hard questions because that's part of the challenge for us is how do we go deep enough in our relationship and our faith with God that we stay true to him even when it's inconvenient or we're tempted not to you got to have a genuine authentic relationship with God you got to be all in you can't be superficial so here's some things that I thought about her and her story as I read this and studied the whole thing. So here's the last slide. I'm going to go through some of these points. She, she had so many advantages. So just to un- unpack the narrative and maybe reread it during the week, Genesis 19, she's related to God's chosen family, right, through marriage. Think about that for a minute. Think about the relationships that you have, Either in your family or in our church family of people that you know who are mature Christians, called by God, they exemplify a godly life, the influence, the positive influence they can have on you, and yet sometimes you don't accept that influence because you don't like the hard truth or the, you know, maybe the correction or the gentle nudge or the conviction. That was her, right? At any time she could have, because she's married into this family that God has anointed and blessed, she could have had the benefits of that wisdom and that passion to follow God, but she didn't take it up. Or she maybe she took it up and put it down every now and then. right? So just because you're related to Uni Hill Church is not enough to save you. You've got to have a genuine, authentic relationship with God. Because if you're not accepting the mature discipleship and the commitment, and, you know, laying down everything that's in your life that's not of God, you cannot save yourself. And I'm, talking to, I'm preaching to myself as well as everybody else, right? Look, look at the second one. She's warned. The judgment's going to come. Doesn't believe it. I wonder sometimes that God warns us about something we're doing and we don't believe it. And we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How do we respond to warnings from God. That's a great question. I mean, we could spend a month just talking about that. When God prompts us about something in our own life that is not right, is not in submission to him, it's ungodly, we're being unfaithful to the covenant that we have with him, what's our response? Do we hesitate? Well, that's what they all did. The whole lot of them did, not just her, but the daughters. Lot did it as well. And so... She's, she's got this warning and yet she doesn't take the warning seriously. And again, if you read Jesus' comments in the Luke uh, chapter 17, he's using the same story as another warning to the Pharisees he's having a conversation with. At some point, God is going to judge the whole earth and it'll be like in the day, he says also in the days of Noah, people just didn't believe it was going to rain, never rained before. You know, there's this giant boat being built in front of them. They're laughing at Noah. It never rained in the history of, of, the, of the earth until the flood came. And, but there's a warning there. But how do we treat the warnings that happen when they're right in front of us? That, that's the question that really I think Jesus is asking. Number th- The third one in the middle there. She's given a way of escape, half takes it and turns around. And again, when I read that, I think, that's me at times. God gives me an out when I'm doing, saying, acting in the wrong way. And I might start that way, but because there's too much of the world still in me and pulling me back, I'll turn around and do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, act the wrong way. So she's, she's this physical illustration of a condition that we can suffer from as disciples today. All she had to do is keep going. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. She's probably minutes, maybe 20, 30 minutes from the town, but she can't help herself. All she had to do is keep going the way that God asked her to. That's all you and I have to do. Keep going the way God has directed us to. That's all we have to do. But we look back because God doesn't own all of our our thinking, our lives, our desires, our passions, our, our wants. We haven't submitted it unto him. It's it's sort of easy to to fake Christianity in a modern world because, you know, we can be veneer when we come to church and no one really knows what we've done during the week. We we, we don't live in a sort of a culture where we're kept accountable every day by living in small villages and everybody knows each other's businesses, unless you live in Kyabran, which I did for a while and everybody knew everything there. So let me bring this to a close, these last two ones. Now think about this, almost saved is not saved at all. You're so close, right? So close, and you think you're doing spiritual, religious stuff. Things are good, but it's about the heart. It's about giving, you know, being all in with your faith and being so passionate about the God that saved you and staying the course. Almost saved is not saved at all. It's nowhere near it. Now, only you know the condition of your own heart. You and God. I don't know it and I'm not pretending to know it. You don't know the condition of my heart. But what we have to understand is almost saved is not saved. You can't be halfway there. So to be a disciple, it's that level of depth and genuine, authentic relationship that we have to give. So the question is what lingers in your heart or in your behaviours or in your thinking? What lingers in mine? Is there just too much of the city life in us like it was in her? Where you can't help but look back. Where every single choice that she made and that we make, day after day, even the little things that no one else sees, just pushes God into the back corner of our lives. And the accumulation of a moment of judgment means we don't make it. God in his mercy was giving them a chance and God in his mercy has given us every chance. But don't let that be your story. I'm not gonna let it be my story. Almost obedient is not enough. Almost loyal to God is not enough. Almost submitting is not enough. Almost following God is not enough. And this is not about religious activity. God doesn't want you to be religious. He wants you to give you, he wants you to give him your whole heart. That's all he wants. The actual surface activity doesn't measure the heart all the time. And that's why it can be veneer and be deceptive. You can look very Christian, sound very Christian, but not live very Christian when no one else is around. So almost is never good enough. There's an exclusivity to God. God says, you've got to put me at the centre of your life and every choice you make has to flow out of that centre know, when I was a new Christian, they used to show you a little pyramid, you know, God at the top and family there and church there. I'm not a pyramid person, right, because I can cut the top of the pyramid off any time I want. <laughs> but if God's at the center, it's a bit more like a, a you know, a, a bicycle wheel. What holds every spoke of my life? You know, What, what holds my thinking, my, my feelings, my decision, my behaviour, the way I treat my family, the way I interact with my work colleagues? What, what holds all that together? Well, if it's God's, is at the centre. There's not about religious. We don't have to be, become super religious. That, that doesn't save you. God's not interested in that. And if you've had that impression, I'm apologised. That's certainly not the heart of this church and it shouldn't be the heart of God's kingdom anywhere. He looks at the heart. We know that. It's repeated in time and time again in Scripture. He said it about David before he was king. Jeremiah says he he measures at the heart. He's a heart-looking God. He's not a behaviour, superficial, veneer-looking God. It's not religiosity. It's relationship. You can't pick and choose when it's convenient to follow God as a Christian. You have to be all in all the time. And that is what I'm asking you to do today. And only you know if there's still some of Sodom in you that pulls you away and you've been giving in. You can even come to church and still not make it because you're not all in. The Pharisees you know, illustrate that story. Lost wife illustrates that story. So you have to choose the depth of relationship. How, how much of, of yourself have you given to God? How much are you willing to give to God? And forget about everybody else. Forget about peer pressure, influences. Only God can save you. And so, having a deep, authentic, genuine relationship with Him is what matters. That's the only thing that matters. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. Examining your own heart. I can't do that, but you and God right now can do it. Examine your own heart. Are you all in? All the time. You can be almost ready to turn around or turn away, but God in his grace gives us mercy, gives us another chance. Is there anything you've never quite given up on worldly desires that still linger in your heart where they just pull you away from having God at the centre? That's what God is asking you to do today. So Father, as we conclude our service, we don't want to be religious, superficial. Examine our thoughts, examine our hearts, our lives. Because of your grace, we're going to respond to be giving every, every component of who we are in submission to you. We remember Lot's wife, Jesus. We hear your words. If we try and save our lives, we lose them. But if we give it up to you, you save our lives. In those challenging moments, Father, I I pray, Lord, that we'd have the courage, the strength to lay it down. Even right now. If you're convicting us, rebuking us, reminding us of something that you've asked for before, Lord, I want us to give it up. Will your Holy Spirit come now and just minister into our lives? We're listening to you and not just hearing what you say, but we want to respond by doing what you've asked us to do. Forgive us our sins, Lord, as we forgive others. Provide for us today, Lord. Guide us today by your Spirit. Just keep your eyes closed for a moment. If if you've never made a decision to put God right at the centre, that's the best definition of Christianity. Jesus came laid down his life that we could have a relationship with his Father in heaven, free. He paid the price. He didn't come to make us religious, but just to put his Father right at the centre of your life. If you've never made that decision, I'm asking you to make that today. You've heard the core message of what it is to be a Christian, that is to give God every part of who you are, and he'll save you. That's what he did for all of us in this room.